So Jesus is in his last few days. He came into the temple and cleaned house, which uh, set the Jewish leaders off. They ask him who gave him the authority to do that, and he answers with a question they refuse to answer. And so things are getting pretty tense, I would say. Uh, they're all a little testy. And Jesus tells them a parable. So Luke 20, verses 9 to 18. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey for a long time. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers so that they would give him some of the produce of the vineyard. But the vine growers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send another slave, and they beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send a third, and this one also they wounded and cast out. The owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the vine growers saw him, they reasoned with one another, saying, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy these vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. When they heard it, they said, May it never be. But Jesus looked at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Okay, so Jesus tells this story um, about a man who planted a vineyard and rents it out. And um, the rent payment appears to be a share of the crop. You know, that's kind of a typical way you do with renting farmland. So at harvest time, he sends a slave to get the crop. And what happens? They beat him up and... Don't give him any fruit, yeah. And so he sends another slave. And what do they do? They beat him and they treat him shamefully. And he still doesn't get any fruit. And the third one? They wound him and cast him out, and I don't think he got any crop then. Yeah, so it's like the, every servant's treated worse than the one before. Uh, how would you feel if you were the vineyard owner about now? Interesting commentary. Unhappy. Yeah, I mean, I think that's when I'd be calling my lawyer and... Uh, you know, taking him to court or something. But instead, what does this owner decide to do? His son. Thinking, well, they'll surely respect my son. And what do they do to him? Kill him. Because they think that by killing the son... They're going to get the vineyard. Because I assume they assume that the son came mm-hmm. because the father's died, and if they kill the son, then there's no heir, and then they're on the vineyard, and then they just kind of take it over. You know, there's nobody there to claim it. That's, I assume, what their reasoning is. And, uh, well, what will the, uh, the owner of the vineyard do to them? Well, obviously he'll destroy them and uh, rent it out to some other people. This is a really easy parable to understand, it seems to me. I mean... Who's the owner of the vineyard? God. Who, it, what's the vineyard? That may be a little harder. God's people. 
God's people and the blessings he gives to his people. Who are the vine growers? The Jews. Yeah, and especially the Jewish leaders. Who are the servants that were sent to correct collect the crop? Prophets. The prophets, the son, the Jesus. <laughs> and uh, so God's going to destroy them because they've been unwilling to give fruit to God and look at what they did to the prophets and ultimately to Jesus. And you see this as God is sort of making his last appeal to the Jewish leaders by sending Jesus. Not a prophet, but his son. And when they face the most critical decision of their life, what are they going to do with the son? And they turn and kill him. I mean, you know God's not going to put up with, you know, the renters that do something like that. Do we ever do anything like that? Would we ever take God's blessings and commandeer them from God and think that we can have them all for ourselves and do what we want to with him and not even listen to any of the people God sends to warn us? You know, I mean, that's an easy thing to do is we kind of think, I have the order. God gave me these blessings. They're mine now. I can. I don't have to give God anything. You know, which is really outrageous when you consider the truth of the matter. Uh, so that's something that happens sometimes. So he says in verse 17, the stone which the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone. So the builders like building a building. They come across the stone. They can't, they can't use it. They throw it out. I mean, some stones just don't work. You know, maybe they're not shaped right. Maybe they're not, I don't know. They're just not, they don't work. And so they, they can't use the stone. God takes it and makes it his, the main stone in the building, his, his building. Of course, what does the stone represent? Jesus. Jesus. <clears throat> and he says, everyone who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, and anybody the stone falls onto will be scattered like dust. You know, if a vase falls on a stone, that's bad for the vase. If the stone falls on the vase, that's really bad for the vase, right? <laughs> Either way you look at it, that's not a good deal. And so if we fall over Jesus, or he falls on us, either way, we're in bad shape. What's the one thing we ought to do with Jesus? In terms of the analogy here. Build off of him. Build on him, yeah. Build, build ourselves up on him. Thoughts and comments on that whole section? Who is reacting to it in verse 16? I assume the people that are listening, Not probably some of whom realize what he's saying. Okay, I knew other places it had said, wasn't it this parable that said they knew he was talking yeah. about them? Yeah. And okay. yeah. So yeah, I'm sure especially the Jewish leadership is uh, yeah. not happy with this uh, parable. Well, wait, are they upset because the vine grower killed the renters? Or are they upset because the renters killed the son? I suspect they're upset because this means that he's saying God's going to punish them for what they're going to do to him. I suspect they really understand what this means. Okay, so like in the context of the parable, like they're upset with the owner of the vineyard coming and punishing and destroying the Yes, I think so. I think so, but because they understand what it means. Right. But yes, you're right. Like that well, doesn't feel like be upset about that. That right. doesn't make any sense. But, but they're like defending themselves. Like exactly. they wouldn't do that or you know. Or maybe outraged that he thought this was a description of them or whatever. Yes. No, I totally get that. But, but, but you're right, this you is consider... the only logical thing. In fact he was awfully, awfully patient to only do that this time. <laughs> yeah. So they were they were shocked not by the renter's actions. But by God's response. That's, that's strange. That is strange. 
Cause, I mean, because I would have, I, I can see being, you know, upset that they're going to, that they themselves, that this is saying, okay, you yourselves have done this and so we're going to be destroyed. But I'm thinking they should also be upset that these bad people that don't really represent us, you know, it's not us, it's not a, any resemblance to <clears throat> living or dead, Pennsylvania. Uh, yeah, well, the, the, right after this parable in Matthew, Matthew twenty-one forty-five, uh, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. Uh, okay. So uh, I think that's the thing. I think they they understand it's about them, but if they did, it should out, outrage them what, that they're doing this. And also in Mark, it says, and they were seeking to seize him, and yet they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. So, yeah, they, they understand it, and yet... They're outraged with the Lord and not with themselves. Exactly. Like, you don't get outraged at God (laughs) when you understand that the parable is against you. Yeah. I feel like it's not... I think it's more like the whole story of it. They're saying, we're not like that. Like, may that never be... I'm not sure it's specifically against God's reaction. Okay, maybe... We always rationalize our uh, behavior. But it is amazing how sometimes we can get so almost blatant in just rejecting the Lord and our reaction and our defensiveness. You know, I was talking with a guy today, he's Brazilian, so he won't hear this, but he's a good guy, but man, he's got himself crossways with the church where he is. He is so really bitter and he is really upset with me because I've challenged his attitude I'm like guy you are the only guy I've talked to about this I know nothing other than what you yourself are saying so the way I'm reacting is based upon what you're telling me (laughs) you know and uh, he said well you're accusing me of this I said all I'm doing is just saying back to you what you're saying to me but it's so hard to see ourselves and it's really hard. So it's like, well, if you're upset with me, I mean, you ought to be upset with yourself because the reason I'm saying this is because what you're saying about how you feel about the situation. <laughs> so we'll see where that goes. But but it, it, that is the hardest thing, though. I mean, we can understand, yeah, but then again, we are outraged because we don't want to see that in ourselves. So. I like hear how God is kind of showing us his point of view. Yeah. And it's hard for us a lot of times to see what his point of view is, thinking like, what must God be thinking about? But but he, he's telling us here, it's like, what would you expect me to do if this, <laughs> this all happened? Like, the laying out entire story for them to see. It's like, what, what would you expect? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, again, I think he's unreasonably patient. Well, they are not going to take this sitting down. They're going to trap Jesus with questions that he cannot answer. They're going to make him at least look really bad and maybe incriminate himself. So every group has its go. 19 to 26. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him that very hour. For they perceived that (coughs) that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for a man to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? 
They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. Okay. So, they hear it also. It says they know he spoke the parable against them. And then they want to capture him. They want to kill him, but the people. So, they send these spies. Look at that in verse 20. They send spies who pretended to be righteous. Try to catch him in some statement. So, think about they're sending spies to him. What does that mean? And so they question him, and they say, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly, and you're not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Why start this question out with all that preamble? Flattery. Flattery! What is the purpose of this flattery? Trying to skew which way he answers the question? Correct, but do you understand how? To make the make Jesus think that here's a bully, here's a true believer coming to ask me a serious question, so I'm not going to be so the the idea is Jesus is not going to be flippant and sarcastic or answer with a question that nobody can answer or do something weird like that. I don't think so. Mostly, I think it's more so that he'll say you don't need to pay taxes. Probably so he'll let his guard down. You're close, Ariel. So what do you mean by that? Why would that make him say that? Well, only because I've heard you say this before. <laughs> <laughs> I thought somebody would remember something I'd say. Because it was like making him, you know, exalting him. Like, we don't need to pay to anybody else because I'm the in charge around here. And I don't know. Yes. That kind of thing. Yes, exactly. So they're sending advice because they don't want him to know where this question's coming from. And so they're trying to swell his head. They're trying to make him believe, no, that's true. You know, man, I do teach the truth. And I don't care whose toes I step on. I just lay it on the line. That's right. I don't care if Caesar doesn't like it. You know, I'll just say not to pay taxes. They're trying to make him get, you know, boastful and prideful to the point where he says something reckless against Caesar. So they, if, if, if he knew where it came from... <laughs> That'd be a problem, because he'd be suspicious. So they send these people he wouldn't know, posing as true believers, and tell you, well, we know you're willing to just tell it like it is, man. You don't, you don't care. You, you'll, you'll blast anybody, because you're so righteous, and you know you always tell the truth, and you know we're just so impressed with you. And, and his head gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and you know, start thinking, yeah, that's right, man, I am. I'm the man. I'm the force to be reckoned with. And yeah, I don't care about Caesar. That, now, that's funny because... Jesus would never do that. I don't know who they're dealing with. That's not Jesus. But I'll tell you, we do that. Man, flattery will just it'll make you do dumb stuff. Cause, I mean, I've been in situations where people flattered me. And I, it made me not see what they were really like. You know, it made me align myself with them irresponsibly. Because they were telling me such good things about myself, I thought they were really sharp. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it just made me let my guard down on really discerning things. Flattery is a trap for the one being flattered. But it's never a trap for Jesus, and there's no trap for him. But e- either way, in a sense, they've got him either way. 
Because if he says, don't pay, obviously Rome is coming down on him for treason. If he says, do pay, the Jews won't like him, even the Jewish people, because they thought God was their real king. And if you pay Rome, then you're denying the kingship of God. So either he's in trouble with Rome or he's in trouble with the people. It's a, a hopeless dilemma. You know, they've got him over a barrel. So do the Jews not pay taxes? They did, but they didn't think he was supposed to. <laughs> <laughs> they had to, they didn't have a choice, but they still theoretically opposed it. Yeah. So are so most of our clients. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. So uh, well, and it mentions in in verse twenty that their intent was to catch him and deliver him to the authorities. So Absolutely, they, they, they want, want him, him to say, say "Don't pay." Say no. Clearly, it's what they want. But even if he said "pay," he's in trouble. Well, he doesn't say either one. What does he say? Give me a coin. Yeah, can I see one of those coins you've got? I need a denarius. Really? Why would he need it? Whatever, we'll humor him. Here's a coin. They give him a coin. And he says, uh, whose picture is that? And whose name's on that coin? And whose picture is it? Caesar. Whose name is it? Caesar. Uh, What does that say about that coin? (laughs) Caesar's. Hey, if you got your picture on something and your name on it... I say, it's yours. And if you want it back, what should I do? Give it back. It's yours. Can't keep something that doesn't belong to you when the rightful owner wants it back. If it's got his name and his, his, his picture on it, it's his. You give back to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. You give to God what belongs to God. Now, what can you say about that? That was, like, just brilliant. I mean, that's it. Absolutely. That is a tremendous statement, as far as I'm concerned, about the Christian's relationship to government. I mean, like, that's perfect. You know, give to God what belongs to him, give, give to the government what belongs to the government. I mean, that, in a nutshell, we take, you know, a few books to say that. <laughs> Jesus says it in one sentence. But also, do you think about it? Yeah, you have if you've heard me teach, but um, whose image were we made in? Whose image were we remade in? God's. Whose name do we wear? Jesus. Who do we belong to? Yeah. See, we are God's property. We've got his picture on us, and we've got his name on us. Somebody in a black car. (laughs) You know nobody in a black car? Not anymore. Pretty nice looking black car. (laughs) Nice looking black car. I I could only see the back of it. The back looks nice. All right. So, so do you see that? That's another application of this that I think is worth thinking about. We're gods, and we ought to, uh, you know, act like that. So I just think that's a really powerful lesson. And man, he walked out of that one without a scratch. Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife and he is childless, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. Now there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died childless, and the second and the third married her, and in the same way all seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died also. In the resurrection, therefore, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. 
Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot even die any more, because they are like angels and the sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the burning bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well. But they did not have courage to question him any longer about anything. <laughs> All right. So you've got the Sadducees. And uh, we have the particular, doc- particular doctrine of the Sadducees, which that they did not believe in. The resurrection. And we know from Acts 23, they had some other things they didn't believe in, like... Angels. And... Demons. Spirits. Humans, like, men don't have spirits that live on them. And so, that's what the Sadducees believe. So they got this little deal that they've worked out. Based upon that law that you're supposed to marry your, uh, you know, brother's widow and raise up children to your brother if he dies childless after he married. That's called the Leveret Law, based upon the Latin Levere, which means brother-in-law or something like that. Uh, so, he got this widow. She was married to a guy. Then she married his brother. And then he died and she married his brother. And he died and she married his brother. There were seven brothers that all married this woman. None of them had any children by her. And the question is, if there's a resurrection, whose wife's she going to be? They all seven have equal <laughs> right to her. You know she can't be married to seven men in the resurrection. There can't be a resurrection. Now, they have that pretty well, you know, planned out. I, I can't believe any group of brothers would be dumb enough to keep marrying <laughs> Clearly, sure, her food is toxic or something. <laughs> uh, but but whatever, you know, you get the idea. And and this is a terrible way to determine truth. Try to overthrow it with some hypothetical question. Whether you know the answer to that or not, it doesn't change whether or not there's a resurrection. You may not know the answer to the question, but it's a bad way to decide whether there's a resurrection. And you know, it's th- that kind of question, what if somebody's on their way to the baptistry and a tree falls on them and kills them? Will it be saved? Well, what if I have no idea whether they'd be saved or not? What does that have to do with you? What does that have to do with the person who the tree doesn't fall on? <laughs> you know, it's like, maybe God wouldn't even let the tree fall on him. I don't know. Trees don't fall on people all that often. But <laughs> you know, or whatever. You get the idea. I mean, hypothetical questions aren't the way to find out what the Bible says. But Jesus does better than that. Jesus said, well, first of all, verse uh, 34 and 30 to 36... What does he say? There's no marriage in heaven. There's no marriage in heaven. That was a dumb question. Not even married in heaven. Actually, in heaven, you just like the angels. The angels <laughs> don't believe in. <laughs> they got a little dig in there. Uh, but marriage is a temporary institution. Marriage is only for life. And it's important that we not overstress it. You know, I think we get to the point where family values sometimes supersede God's values. And that shouldn't be. I mean, our relationship with God is more important than our relationship with our family. And Jesus says that a bunch of times. And one reason is because even marriage, which supersedes the parent-child relationship, which is superseded by marriage, but even marriage only lasts this lifetime. And so it's temporary. And in heaven, evidently, there's no marriage I don't know how all that works in heaven, uh, but that's what Jesus says, so I believe it. And then he goes ahead to prove that the dead were raised in a passage you probably would never think of. 
where God at the burning bush tells Moses, I am Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's God. But when God appeared to Moses at the burning bush, where were Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? They were dry bones. They were dry bones. They've been around in the grave for a long, long time. How can God say he's their God unless their spirits, oh, which they also didn't believe in, were still alive and there'd be a resurrection one day. They never thought about that passage as a passage to prove the resurrection. Uh, so, uh, that he proves the resurrection out of a passage they never thought about. And he explains that marriage doesn't have any relationship to the resurrection. So that question was totally blown out of the water. You know, I've always thought that that question was probably a question that every Sadducee kid asked every Pharisee kid in elementary school or something like that. Sounds <laughs> like one of those that's kind of one of those perennial questions, where did Cain get his wife or something like that? And uh, Jesus has the answer. Thoughts and comments on all that? Again here, I think we see how they ask him a question, trying to get it as pointed of a question as they possibly can. And then he completely broadens it and says, you're completely missing the point. <laughs> he he doesn't pander to their question. He, he doesn't answer their question before going off to a different topic. He just goes off to a different topic because their question doesn't deserve an answer. <laughs> yes. Yes, Jesus... Jesus just, um, you admire him when he gets in these tight spots, and he doesn't look like he's in a tight spot at all. You know, he's totally in command of the situation, calmly says things, succinctly says things, that you're just kind of left, they were left without any more questions. What? I mean, every question they ask that's supposed to stump him just makes him look better. That's got to be frustrating. They're better off with no questions, you know? Sarah? One of the things that I found interesting about the whole Leverite marriage thing is that if you look back in Deuteronomy, it says, when brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. So it's not, according to that, it doesn't sound like it's like if, the family, if one brother is living over here and one is over here, but if it's more of a communal household, and I found that kind of interesting. I mean, I may just be reading it. I think they normally took that as the fill the responsibility. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it goes on and it's, it, you know, fairly, but it was just interesting. I never thought of that aspect of it, that it was, you had that, the communal living arrangement as well. Happening. Or unless they met. Yeah. And nothing that the brothers had lived together. They were, you know, living as brothers before yeah. they got married. I don't know. Yeah, yeah that's an interesting thought I had about that. Um, this is kind of a tangent, but since we're here, we're kind it's of sort of related. Um, there's an idea that people in the Old Testament didn't have a concept of the resurrection. There is that idea. And that doesn't seem like that could be, because how would there be, like, an entire sect that was devoted to debunking it if nobody believed it? Does that make sense? Clearly, Mm -hmm. in the intertestamental period, people began to believe it. The Pharisees certainly believed it. That was a big thing. Everybody agrees with that. The question is, in the Old Testament period, did people believe it? I think yes. I think there's a number of passages and things that show 
there were plenty of people who believed in the resurrection of the Old Testament, including New Testament statements like Hebrews 11 talking about the patriarchs looking for a city that has foundations and confessing they were pilgrims and strangers here. I mean, there's several statements there that clearly they're looking for a resurrection. There are lots of passages, but I think especially there's several things in Psalms and Proverbs. I don't know how you can explain them if they didn't have an idea of the afterlife. I mean, maybe they didn't have a developed idea of exactly what the resurrection involved, but they certainly thought of some sort of afterlife. Now, I don't think Job did. You know, I think there are there may be some others that didn't. But I think certainly the Old Testament in general shows a belief in, in an afterlife. Well, and as far as that goes, to some extent, we don't know how the resurrection works. We don't know how <laughs> yeah. the whole heaven thing's going to, you know, how that... Right. There. We know more than they did, but yes. we don't know a lot. Yes. Yeah, good point. We don't have to know everything about how something works to believe this reminds me of the passage that <clears throat> Paul quotes, um, talking about supporting preachers. You know, he quotes the passage saying, don't muzzle the ox while it's threshing. And he says, God's not really concerned about oxen here, is he? And, I mean, I would say, well, if I read that passage, I would think God was talking about oxen. <laughs> <laughs> so it makes me wonder how much deeper meaning are we missing in some of these Old Testament passages. Amen. Yeah, Absolutely. Now, I don't think he means by that that God didn't intend for them not to muzzle the ox when they were threshing, yeah. but what he's saying is, do you think all God had in mind here was just a provision for animals? Isn't there a deeper lesson in principle that we need to gather this? This wasn't just animals, though he didn't want them to muzzle the ox when they were threshing. I would look at, do you realize how much the Bible gets out of three whole <laughs> verses historically on Melchizedek? <laughs> We would have never remembered that guy's name if it hadn't been for <laughs> Hebrews going into a whole lengthy dissertation. It's all logical. It's all there. It's just like, wow, I would have never thought about that. I would have never seen that. You know, so you're right. The Bible is just an inexhaustible mind of understanding that we can always see more in it that we never thought about. Other thoughts? Good point. Well, Jesus got a question. 41 to 44. Then he said to them, How is it that they say the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, David calls him Lord, and how is he his son? All right, so Jesus' question is, um, they say that the Messiah, the Christ, would be David's son, but in Psalm 110, David calls him his Lord. So how can David's son be David's Lord? That's because, did they say that the Messiah was the son of David? Yeah. Did David call him his Lord in Psalm 110? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, rule over, you know, on your throne. So, so that's a good question. And they don't have an answer to that. But if they had answered that riddle, they would have answered their own objection to Jesus. What was their big, big objection to Jesus when it was all said and done? They said he was guilty of blasphemy because he said, I am the son of God. How could 
David's son be David's Lord. Only if he was man and God. This is the question they need to answer. Because when they answer this question, it solves their objection to Jesus. He wasn't just trying to stump them. He was trying to lead them to recognize, wait a minute, you guys have, have, have short-circuited this thing. You've got him being David's son. But you've got to recognize David called him his Lord. So you, when you're t- making the Messiah only human, you're only looking at half the question. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? Again, wow, he sees things that I wouldn't have seen. Thoughts and comments? Forty-five to twenty-one, four. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. <coughs> Jesus looked up and saw the um, the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. So he condemns the scribes for what in verse 46? <clears throat> yeah, pride. What did they want? Honor. You know, they wanted to impress. They dressed to impress. They wanted the respectful greetings. They wanted the chief seats. They wanted to be big shots, and they wanted everybody to know it. What was he condemning them for in 47? Devouring widows' houses. Odd diet. (laughs) <laughs> They're just waiting for that. <laughs> so what does he mean, devouring widows' houses? Well, since they don't, like, have a husband, he can kind of, they can pick on them. Pick on them how? Take advantage of them? Uh, how? Apparently by... Getting all their money given to the church. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think the idea is they devoured their houses by extorting out of them all the high contributions and things like that. So they're devouring their living. I think that's the idea. They're, they're, you know, you would think of old widows maybe as being a little less capable of defending themselves, maybe more vulnerable, maybe more easily led. Maybe more emotionally driven. I mean, radio and TV preachers even today. You know, it's people like poor widows who don't have any money that are giving them everything they got. And it's pathetic. You know, and here these preachers and pastors are, you know, driving around in their, you know, luxury vehicles while they're being supported by people living hand to mouth. Jesus was not happy about that. And then they turn around and offer these long prayers for pretense sake. You know, you always wonder, why do we have so much more to say to God in public than we do in private? You know, could it be that we're more interested in impressing people with our long prayers that sound good? That's just, 
that stinks more and more when you realize what their real motive was. And then Jesus gives a case in point. Hang you on, know. just a second. So the devouring widow's houses in this list of things doesn't seem to fit, like with all the other things he's saying. Yeah, I agree. But it's like right there in the middle, and then he goes back to saying and offering long prayers for appearance. I think that's purpose. Okay. I think here they are wanting all this honor, wanting to impress, acting like they're great men of, you know, godliness, great men of faith. All the while, they're taking advantage of these widows. Okay. I think that smacks you in the face right there. You know, would you expect people offering long prayers and and being seen as super spiritual to take advantage of poor widows? Well, it, it reminds me of what, at least historically, was a um, a practice of the Catholic Church. I want to say they were called indulgences, yeah. but that may yeah. not be right. Uh, where you would pay money to the church, and they would offer prayers on your behalf, or say a mass on your behalf. And, you know, so I, I, I don't know that the widows were doing that exactly here, but here's money... Oh, I'll pray for you, Widow Jones. I'll pray for you. I'll and pray for your deceased relatives to pray them out of purgatory. Yeah. We were, you know, we were talking about putting those up at the auction. There we go. <laughs> so, you know, that kind of a, a situation where that's part of it. Because if they're long prayers for show, I don't think they're like real prayers. Yeah. Maybe yeah. I'm wrong. I agree. And so then he gives a case in point. You know, he looked at what they're putting in the treasury. What are the rich people putting in? They're putting in their gifts. Probably made a lot of noise. Probably probably a lot of bills. What's the poor widow putting in? Two small copper coins. So does that look like she's not putting in much and they're putting in a lot? That's not the way Jesus saw it. How did he see what the rich did? They had plenty to give. Oh, they're putting it on their surplus. Didn't cost them anything. What about this poor widow? All she had to live on. Every last dime she had. For somebody who opposes the devouring of widows' houses, this must have been the supreme tragedy. Here you kind of bilking this woman out of everything she had. And what was this for? What treasury was this he was looking at? Doesn't say it here exactly, but you know. The temple treasury. Look at verse 5. While some were talking about the temple, that it was adorned with beautiful stones and votive gifts. You know what a votive gift is? A gift in the payment of a vow. He said, as for these things which you are looking at, the days will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another, which will not be torn down. So paying all this for the temple, and it's about to be destroyed. What a waste. She takes everything she's got to live on. While the rich people are just giving a little from their surplus. And it's for something that's about to be totally demolished anyway. So I don't believe that Jesus is trying to present this widow as an example for us. I think he's trying to present as an example of what the scribes and Pharisees were doing to these widows. I don't think there's anybody who thinks we ought to give like the widow. What would we say about somebody who gave everything they had to live on? That's not question their sanity. Right, yeah. And maybe not even their sanity and brightness, but 
Just that they're misguided. Like, yeah, they're irresponsible, I think. Well, what? So they can't pay their bills, they can't feed their family, you know, they can't go to church, or whatever. <laughs> you know, we'd be big on that, right? Uh, you know, I mean, really, do you really think we ought to put everything in we've got to live on? And live on what? I don't think that's what Jesus wants. I don't think he was trying to say that's what we ought to do. I don't think he's blaming the widow. I think he's blaming the scribes and Pharisees for this system they've concocted that devours the houses of these widows. Thoughts and comments? I remember it was up late one night watching those guys on TV trying to get your money. Like televangelists. Yes. One of them. And they always say, like, oh, if you're going through a rough time right now, you know, just 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 give a gift and it will all be really so one of them was if you are deep in loan debt or something like that, just give a a, a thousand dollar blessing and, and all of that will be gone. I was the seed I just, blessing, right? The right. Blessing I'm like, I'm sitting there, I'm like, you're preying on people yes, who are in exactly. debt to try exactly. to get like it's bad enough trying to give them to give you money, but preying on people who are in debt like that—that's so. Whose that's money bad. are you trying to get? Exactly, they're creditors, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it was. I was. I couldn't believe it. It's outrageous. I mean, those things are just no, uh, totally no conscience. But but it reminds me of this kind of 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 you know you're trying to take advantage of somebody who. Obviously cannot afford this. <laughs> and you think it's bad here? You ought to try Brazil. That's yeah. an institution in Brazil. Reminds me of Second uh, Peter two. I was just studying with somebody today, and in their greed, talking about the false teachers, they will exploit you with false words. It's exactly what happens. People made a business out of religion. Now, in this story, did the Pharisees and scribes see any of this money? It sounded like the widow was giving it to the temple. So I'm wondering how or if they were benefiting from it. You know, the scribes were, may have been somewhat associated with the temple. Um, and so that's a good question. I don't know about the Pharisees. The scribes who he's really talking to me. Uh, but... Oh, okay. So they might have been paid out of this? Is that what you're saying? No, no. I don't know what all... Who controlled what happened to the, the money the in the treasure, would probably have whether it was it. the Sanhedrin or... I don't know. Yeah, that's no. a good question. I don't, I don't okay. have a good answer. I don't know the answer. Okay. But regardless, I am assuming similar scams were enacted in various situations. But a lot of, I'm assuming that a lot of Jewish rabbis made sure they lived high on the hog. At least the scribes were devouring widows' houses. We know they were. So how were they doing that if it wasn't by collecting, you know, large donations from them? Not that they were just going in and, you know, helping themselves to the house. Okay. Now, we do have the, um, the rich young ruler who was told to sell everything. So, you know, what's the difference here? Are we to maybe say, you know, that was specifically his problem, so that's what he needed to do? And he was told to sell it all and give it to the poor. <laughs> Not <laughs> to the temple. Yes, exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> but, so, yeah, 
were perhaps not intended to interpret that as general advice. Certainly, I don't know anybody who has, so... No, I, I think not. I mean, I think it's sell or get rid of anything that you love more than God. So, I mean, that, that may be some general advice for people who are so greedy like we often are. But, no, I don't think... I mean, obviously, there are people throughout the Bible, Christians, who were rich and who owned things. And there's not some statement that they were sinning by doing that. I mean, if everybody were to see this passage that way and do it like they should, um, I mean, you would imagine like one person giving away everything and, well, now they have nothing. They need to be supported by the church. But if everybody in the church gives it all away, like, how would this be sustainable in... Right. Long term. Anything that you receive, you'll need to just divvy it up. No, you're exactly right. Yeah. Yeah, and, yeah, so... I mean, I think what what John was saying, you know, with the radio and TV preachers, you know, the late night, whatever, able. I mean, yeah, it's some of that stuff is just so, I just, wow. You know, and I'm not necessarily against, you know, the possibility that people could transfer funds to the church electronically, but I know, like in Brazilian churches, a lot of times they'll go through with credit card machines and things like that. Where the point is, they want you to give money you don't have. Not that they want to transfer funds, you know, with a debit machine or whatever, but they want you to give money that you don't have because they want to get your money. They want to get anybody's money. They want to get their hands on anything they can. And they come up with all sorts of scams. They'll sell holy water from the Jordan River for this or that. and They'll sell all kinds of trinkets and things. And these are Protestant churches, theoretically. But it just becomes, and then, then all the seed blessings, and you know, and the, so there's the common for Brazilian churches. You meet every night, and a, every night for something different. So one night's for prosperity, one night's for sickness, one night's for your finances, one night's for demons, one night's for your money, you know, one night's for, you know, whatever your family, you know. But about every other night, it's specifically for money somehow. And those are the nights they really come down with the money appeal. Wait, you go to church every night and you give money every night? <laughs> Probably not. I might be given two mites then as well. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I mean, it's amazing. It's amazing the level of exploitation. And just the unconscionable. I mean, it's like, how can we do this? Well, people have been doing it a long time. Look at the Old Testament. Look at how much was said about exploiting widows and orphans through prophets people take advantage in the name of God and that's blasphemy similar to what Mindy was saying about the rich young ruler I remembered a few chapters ago in Luke 14 33 it also says so then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions which sounds like very black and white like that's what you have to do but I mean I think you do Okay, but <laughs> it just doesn't mean. What does that look like? Yeah, I think it looks like God has everything you've got. There, it's all the Lord. It's yours. Like from a mental standpoint, I think so. Okay, yeah. is just Jesus talking in his thing. way? His way. He's got a way. You know, it, we, we don't consider any of it ours. It's all the Lord's. We use it for Him. You know. I mean, I think we need to 
our life's not our own. You know, we, we're crucified. We died to ourselves. Well, not literally, but we're God's. We belong to God. You know, I think, you know, that's that's the whole idea is me and everything I've got, I should use for the Lord and, and consider it to be God. Same as how a few verses before that, we're supposed to hate our father and mother exactly. and everything, yeah. which again is not yeah. literally hating right. them. But. Jesus says a lot of things to make an impression. Yeah. Doesn't, I'm not trying to say they're not real, but if you tried to take them woodenly, yeah. they would end up with certainly things that you want. She's not dead, she's sleeping. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> All right. Good on all that. How about five to 